Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another session of um, SACPA. Um, during this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continued support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we have Sandra Azokar, the Executive Director of Friends of Medicare, joining us from Edmonton on the topic of healthcare in crisis, COVID-19 and beyond. Sandra has been a social activist for more than 30 years in Alberta. Her previous experience is working as a child protection worker, a community organizer, and a labor activist. Prior to coming to the Friends of Medicare, she served as the vice president on the, of the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees. She was a member of the board of directors of Friends of Medicare for six years be, before becoming the executive director in 2012. I wanna thank you very much, Sandra, for joining us today, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you so much for that introduction and, and good morning. Uh, thank you to SACPA for allowing me to bring greetings from Friends of Medicare today. Um, our organization, if you could just show quickly that our first slide there, our organization was founded in 1979 as a nonpartisan advocacy society and it has since that time been lobbying and advocating for the protection and expansion of our publicly funded, publicly administered and publicly delivered health care. We are a coalition of many individuals and organizations, including physicians and patients, um, seniors organizational organizations, cultural faith and community groups, as well as labor organizations. We're nonpartisan, but we understand the importance of politics and ideology, which is only bad when you don't agree with it. We get called a special interest group uh, quite often uh, lately, um, but I can tell you that the special interest that we have and what guides our work is in the improvement and expansion of a public health care system that is there based on need and not ability to pay. The ideology that drives us is one that is based on the central tenet of equity because at the end of the day if we can't be equal when we're sick at the time when we're the most vulnerable then when can we be equal? We're all the same. We're all from the part of the human race. Um, we believe uh, that governing is about choices. Can you put a uh, next uh, slide, please? About the political will to impact change, guided and based on the values that are held by those in leadership positions. In April of 2019, we elected a government who, if anything, has been very clear with Albertans about their intentions and of their plans for Alberta's public services. So far, we have seen that they celebrate, um, that they celebrate, uh, sorry, this is uh, my, my page just died there. They celebrate individualism and, and that they want to see us move away from that collectivism that embodies the caring and compassion that is necessary to advance society. And finally, they have repeatedly shown an endless quest to privatize. As Albertans continue to navigate one of the worst health crises that we have experienced in decades, we find ourselves in an unprecedented political time. After years of the same political playbook, uh, which is currently being used in Alberta, 
it has been our experience that their actions and policy setting is by design and not by accident. This government will under-resource, underfund, and understaff our public services, our public health care, and offer the private sector as a solution. Given that I only have uh, 30 minutes, I'm going to highlight a few of the areas that we have been focusing on in our advocacy and attempt to kind of uh, show a bit of a pattern of what it is that I, I described initially. So as COVID uh, continues to impact our day-to-day -day reality, many of us have been reflecting on the vital importance of our public health care system. As we look around the world and various countries' responses to this unprecedented pandemic, it has become especially timely that we fortify our commitment to a system based not on profit, but instead on the shared belief that healthcare is a human right. But unfortunately, in this province, during one of the worst health crises we have ever faced, our government has doubled down on their efforts to undermine and erode our public health care. Instead of seeing greater support for our health care system and the workers who keep it going, we are seeing this crisis being leveraged to usher in legislations and initiatives uh, that pave the way for uh, ever more privatization of our health care. This pandemic has served as a grim testament to the necessity of Canada's universal public health care system, and it has illuminated those areas of our health care that are in dire need of improvement. So let's set the stage. Next slide, please. In May of 2019, uh, the UCP appointed Janice McKinnon to, the, uh, to chair the Blue Ribbon Panel and to look into the province's expenditures. The panel was given a very narrow mandate to examine expenses, but not revenues, and was tasked with recommending a path to a balanced budget by the year 2022-23 without raising taxes. The panel released its report on September 3rd, and the recommendations included massive cuts to public services, which served to directly inform the UCP future policies and financial planning. In the, er in the area of healthcare, uh, the panel recommended transformational changes in the way um, that healthcare services are delivered and healthcare professionals are compensated. Most concerning was the recommendation that the government expand the role of private healthcare in Alberta. We propose that this transformational change should have focused on expanding and improving our public health care system rather than looking at expanding the role of private health care. If we were serious about transformational change, we need to look at bringing back under the public umbrella all those areas in our health care that have been heavily privatized in this province, such as seniors care and home care which I will be touching on briefly later, later on in this presentation. The recommendation that Alberta look at the use of alternative services delivery for day procedures and other services that do not have to be delivered in hospitals that could be delivered in private or not-for-profit facility was, and it's still the wrong and irresponsible direction to take in, in dealing with our wait times and dealing with some of the backlogs that we have seen uh, over the years uh, when it comes to surgeries. One of the basic problems among the many uh, with private health care is that entrepreneurs charge whatever the market will bear. It's all about chasing a few customers who are willing to pay a lot more for even a little extra. Private health care maximizes price and cost as well as waste. 
So it systematically erodes global cost control, which is one of the essential strengths of any public health system. The government becomes, as a result, the primary customer in this, in this private uh, for-profit world. Move forward to February 2020. Uh, the government released a 2 million Ernest & Young uh, review of health services that had a focus on economics and finding efficiencies in, the, in our healthcare system. This report uh, contained 57 recommendations that by their estimate could result in an estimated 1.9 billion savings. Though the health minister Chandra indicated at that time that all not recommendations were feasible or would be implemented. The uh, initial plan was to have all these uh, uh, implementations in place um, by August 13th. And, and of course, given that we had a, have lived through a pandemic, those uh, implementations are still not out formally, but yet we're seeing slowly how some of these recommendations are playing out in, in the healthcare uh, system. This report um, basically served to provide an ideological fodder for this government to start the process of privatizing our health care system by contracting out and reducing health care services available to Albertans. The recommendations outlined in this report ultimately had the potential to turn over resources, health care dollars and staff to private companies that will be subsidized by public health care dollars rather than building upon the solid foundation that we have in our health care. Between the release of the McKinnon report and Ernest & Young Alberta Health Services, uh, the government had uh, forecasted a potential of 5,000 health care jobs losses. Can you show the next uh, couple of slides? I, I uh, should have asked you to put those through um, while we were doing this. Um, with these reports in hand, um, the world and Alberta gets hit by a pandemic and the economy hits rock bottom and comes to a full stop in March. At the start of this pandemic, the government pushed through budget 2020, uh, which was based on an unrealistic forecast for oil prices and some su subsequent uh, government revenues. Put that together with the economic impact that this pandemic will have on all Canadians, it was very clear that what this government needed to do was to push the reset button and to go back to the drawing board for budget 2020. But we didn't see any of that happening. Um, Yet we saw a quarterly update that had, uh, instead of, of uh, going forward, a very much um, clear indication that our province financially is going to be in a serious crisis that will uh, require us to make, uh, you know, take into consideration some of the priorities that uh, will lead um, the way that Albertans receive health care and public services going forward. In the middle of this pandemic, though, we saw uh, a, a never-ending um, narrative about bringing in uh, private surgical facilities to address wait times, uh, uh, the, for the government to bring in the uh, the surgical um, initiative, the Alberta Surgical Initiative, that has been touted as the savior for our our healthcare system. Uh, and for that, they needed to start passing legislation that would allow them to do that. So one of the bills that actually impacts uh, some of the, that work that the government is is currently uh, bent on on putting forward w was the. Uh, Bill 30, which is the Health Statutes Amendment Act. 
Um, and with that bill, Alberta is on track to the creation of market entry for private health care. This omnibus bill made sweeping changes to Albertans' uh, health care, including repealing or changing nine pieces of existing health legislation. It provided the legislative framework for the privatization of our health care. The changes contained in this bill have the potential to turn over our resources, health care dollars, and staff to private corporations. Um, the bill follows several of the recommendations in the performance review of the Alberta Health Services. Um, as we know, uh, that, that was contracted by Ernest & Young, as I've mentioned before. Some highlights of this uh, Bill 30 include the fact that the Health Care Protection Act uh, would be renamed to the Health Facility Act and would lower the bar for the approval of new private clinics and private surgical facilities. If you remember, um, if you're um, you know, old enough to remember or, or young enough to remember, the current Health Care Protection Act, formerly known as the infamous Bill 11, resulted uh, from hundreds of thousands of Albertans standing up and protesting against the then Premier Klein's ongoing attempt to establish a parallel private uh, health care system in Alberta. So we didn't win that fight, but what we did win was the protection that was afforded uh, to our public health care system under that bill um, that basically um, disallowed uh, some of the things that will be allowed under this new bill. Um, as well, one of the things that we're going to be seeing in this bill, uh, under the guise of choice, uh, non-physician corporations would be able to employ doctors. Corporations whose ultimate goal is to profit. Um, this type of, of change in, in the employer uh, relationship, uh, right now physicians are employed by the government and, and now we've opened it up for corporations to come in and, and basically build the government as a third party uh, and hire physicians who will no longer be able to, um, if, if they work for these corporations, to build directly to Alberta Health Services for their services. So that's a, a huge concern that we have. It's taking that public administration away uh, from physicians and from our public health care system uh, and, and turning these corporations into the employer. The other uh, thing that was noted, uh, notable uh, from this bill is the number of public members appointed by the ministers to sit on regulatory colleges would be doubled, enabling the government to stack councils with their supporters, as we have seen with other types of, of boards that have been stacked with uh, uh, individuals that make it much easier for this government to push forward their agenda. Overall, this bill is a, is a very damaging piece of legislation intended to erode public delivery of health care by building a health care delivery market and encouraging much greater corporate involvement um, by, by allowing them to receive public funding for publicly funded services. Um, and that's how we actually um, have been sold this, this new um, bill is by saying that Albertans won't pay anything out of pocket because it's publicly funded. But um, the intent of, of it uh, is the fact that we are actually uh, setting the stage for potential significant shift to for-profit delivery of not only surgical surgeries, but also of acute care, diagnostic imaging labs and primary community care services. If you can put the next um, the next uh, slide up um, 
Shortly after this bill was passed, we saw that this government is looking to establish a, a health contracting secretariat, which uh, whose role will be focused on building the healthcare delivery market and reducing barriers to market entry for large, larger corporate players. Highlights from this request for proposal that uh, lasted for a month indicated clearly that this secretary would be used to build internal markets, next slide please, for outsourcing surgeries and imaging and getting public and private sector uh, to compete uh, on price per procedure, purchase providers, etc., cetera, uh, and entrenching uh, private sector actors into our current public health care. The end game here is to force public health authorities to compete on prices um, with the for-profit facilities and where you are often not comparing uh, apples to apples. It's not a, a good game to get into when we are uh, contracting out our, our, our health care services uh, to large corporations. It's that's a stage for um, the fear that that we have had for a long time. Alberta has always seen been seen as a fertile ground for private uh, interests, and now uh, with this bill and with uh, the subsequent steps that have been taking, we are seeing that this fertile uh, ground has been potentially open to the market system. So uh, Premier Kenny wasn't kidding when he said that Alberta was open for business. Um, you know, basically, this business also includes healthcare. Two issues here that that need to be highlighted as we see this contracting out of our surgeries to private corporations is that uh, in order for them to be successful, the volumes uh, guaranteed uh, to to bring these players into the market will have to likely stay there post COVID. And uh, contracting out of the simple stuff, uh, which is what normally um, happens when, when we have um, these, these types of arrangements, will uh, only serve to throw off the case uh, mix in public hospitals. Um, and the ministries often realize very quickly that there's only so many day procedures of low acuity uh, and, and less complex patients they can send to the, the non-hospital surgical facilities um, and uh, they will need to allow eventually more complex surgeries and higher acuity in order to guarantee sufficient volumes to encourage these players or these investors to enter the market. And that's what the profits will tell government. Alberta wants about 30% of surgical volume provincially contracted out, up from about 15%. So for a government that has spoken nonstop about the high cost of providing health care, about the sustainability of our health care if we don't control costs, about how we need to lower the cost of providing health care, about physical, uh, fiscal restraint, et cetera, et cetera, Ironically, we're seeing the reverse. We're, it's, we're seeing, uh, very ironic that we're seeing as something completely removed from that narrative that we keep on hearing. What we're not hearing is, uh, what is not being shared with Albertans is how much contracting out our public health care will ultimately cost to the citizens of this province, nor any comparators of how much it would cost to instead increase in hospital capacity or build public infrastructure in the interest of the of the public good. So I, I think that's, uh, if anything, that lesson um, 
if, if you hear anything from my presentation is is that we need to start demanding that accountability from this government uh, who talks a, a good talk but yet uh, their actions when it comes to contracting out is not indicative of 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 them um, going through with this need to save us money so so now that we have the legislative framework for this privatization to start taking shape we're starting to see those who seek to profit from our health care start to come forward so through a story that was just released by cbc in august we learned about the lengths that this government will go in order to push their privatization agenda on albertans a new private orthopedics surgical facility the largest ever in alberta has been proposed on the site of the erickson neeson uh, car lot in here in edmonton which is next to the royal alex hospital and um, basically through uh, the, the report that was uh, provided, uh, had already gained the Minister of Health's tentative political support. So this was five orthopedic surgeons, uh, the principal advisor for the Minister of Health, lobbyists and representatives from Ericsson Neeson that all came together, hired an architect and had um, ongoing ready access to the Minister of Health. Uh, and so for us, this deal shows unequivocally how ideologically driven healthcare deliver objectives are mixing with political influence and interference in this province. Uh, behind closed doors, away from any public accountability, scrutiny or oversight, the Minister of Health has given ready access to those who seek to profit from the poor health of Albertans. Under the proposed term of this backroom deal, the 200 plus million five to seven story private surgical facility would be tasked with performing all insured minor surgeries while the public system would be left with the more complex cases as i mentioned before which is what they need to do to make this a, a, a um, an attractive market deal. This deal ensured that the government, meaning every single Albertan, would assume all risk if the privatization experiment did not work out. Albertans must remember now that when the same type of business model was tried at the Re Health Resource Center in Calgary, they very quickly went bankrupt leaving Albertans on the hook for millions of dollars and over 900 surgeries that had to be brought back under the public system. Those leading the projects for the new private facility intended to make the contract so tight that if any other government is elected, it would be prohibitively expensive for them to cancel it. So they also proposed that they would be saving money by hiring non-unionized staff, creating a risk of underpaid and overworked staff and poorer health outcomes for patients. So uh, government ideologues insist that contracting out is benign because services are still paid for, for with public money, as I mentioned before. But this is far from truth. Contracting out surgical facilities is more accurately described as corporate subsidies. And it is about the most nonsensical way to make pub use of public money that you can think of if you tried. Past attempts to privatize surgeries in the province and across Canada have shown that private delivery of surgical facilities costs more than public delivery. Contracting out means that the public lose our right to see what we're paying for uh, services from private suppliers and are denied any input as on how to provide or change services. This project is not about shortening wait lists, 
contracting out is not about um, this Alberta surgical initiative is not about shortening wait lists either. Providing better care or improving the healthcare system. It is about the privatization of our healthcare. Systemic changes are needed to address Alberta's health care issues, but they must be in line with the vision of improving on the solid foundation that we already have within our public system and improving our existing public capacity. Unfortunately, as we have seen, that this government is not interested in funding public solutions because that would mean that the government would have to truly believe in the value of public health care. On a smaller scale, but worth mentioning, is this bill to is Bill 204 um, that was introduced on July the 8th by Minister by uh, MLA Tani Yao from from uh, Fort McMurray. Um, bill 204 was called the Voluntary Blood Donation Repeal Act, and this very work shy uh, mere three page bill simply called for the repeal of the Voluntary Blood Donation Act uh, that was passed in 2017. And it offered no alternative to address our current dependency on the U.S. plasma-derived products and no reason to necessitate this repeal except for the fur to further this government's never-ending quest to privatize our public resources. Um, to some degree, the, the, uh, I'm, I'm glad that the, the uh, session ended when it did because this bill was left on the books, but um, MLA Yao has made it clear that he intends to bring it back. Uh, just very uh, worthy of, of note, um, during the discussion in the uh, in the committee that deals with these private members bill, we had the opportunity to listen to uh, Dr. Sher, who, who is the uh, head of the Canadian Blood Services, our national collector of blood, and he made it very clear that um, introducing or repealing this act would impact our, our blood supply um, negatively impact our blood supply and that um, he couldn't support this bill. Um, so, you know, I, I he, after hearing directly from our national blood collector, um, it, it stands to reason that uh, they would not pursue this, but uh, that remains to be seen. Um, and now we move to public labs, uh, pu public laboratories who have been um, in the media quite often since the beginning of this pandemic. Um, as one of the first moves uh, as government prior to being, even before being sworn in, the UCP announced that the 590 million lab hub project would be put on hold until they had an opportunity to review the project. Then soon after this announcement, uh, can you uh, put the next screen um, slide, please? Uh, Premier-elect Jason Kenney claimed that the project will do nothing to improve patient services, a claim which is both inaccurate and pet, uh, disrespectful to laboratory uh, workers and the vital work that they do for Albertans. Um, during that time, there was quite a few reports that, uh, that showed that our current lab system as it is, is outdated and overwrought and that without a plan uh, in its stead, this halt to what was to be a major expansion of our public lab service puts, puts Albertans health in jeopardy. Um, next slide. Um, there was subsequent news reports uh, Albertans learned uh, that physicians had been instructed to buy a new equipment that couldn't be moved or would be expensive to move to the new facility. Um, uh, 
But while politicians and government agencies play the blame game of burdens are still waiting to hear how and when this important services will be delivered. Uh, quickly in October 2019, existing leadership in Alberta Public Labs was suddenly removed and the name changed to Alberta Precision Labs. And the name change was the removal of, of the word public, uh, signal the inevitable move towards privatization. Um, we know that prior to Alberta's COVID-19 outbreak, the government had already sent out a request for proposal and we were all uh, well on our way to putting uh, the central part of our health care up for grabs to the highest bidder. Next slide, please. Um, any, if anything, COVID has shone a light on the importance of Alberta's public medical uh, lab services. To date, Alberta's labs have administered nearly 1,062,956 tests uh, on 832,000 Albertans. And that's far exceeding uh, the number of tests administered per capita than any other jurisdiction in Canada. Um, so uh, basically now more than ever, Albertans are witnessing firsthand a direct link between the lab and their health. In, in Alberta, this pandemic has shone a light on the impact that having publicly delivered and funded lab services has made in helping to flatten the curb by providing the capacity for timely and effective diagnosis for those impacted by, um, by cap, uh, COVID. I have uh, five minutes left and I have to talk about seniors care, which is another area that um, we have actually uh, seen uh, under serious crisis during this uh, pandemic. As of September 9th, out of the 248 COVID-19 related deaths, 162 have been facility residents. Um, and after decades uh, of, of us advocating um, and sounding the alarm around the issues facing seniors care, um, we, uh, we continue to see um, the fact that uh, the current funding structure that creates incentives for both not-for-profit and especially for-profit providers to pursue low-wage strategies for their staff um, is, has been, uh, I think, has played a major role in, in the fact that we um, uh, are not um, able to provide seniors with the kind of care that they need. Next slide, please. Uh, you know, we saw these recommendations in the Ernest & Young um, that the government needed to pursue further privatization. Next slide, um, that they wanted to see the sale of Care West and Capital Care to private providers as a one-time revenue source. And, uh, you know, and, and those are the two uh, last uh, big, huge public uh, uh, seniors care facilities. They also wanted to see further privatization of continuing care um, by um, converting long-term care beds into designated supported living beds. In other words, reassess those individuals needing 24 hours care for unscheduled medical needs to lower levels of care, um, which is, equally just as nefarious. I, somehow we're going to make everybody better. This change would mean that residents would be considered to have lower staffing needs and would remove registered nursing from seniors care. Um, staffing has been long overlooked issue in continuing care. Um, and so we continue to see it is beyond our comprehension as to why this government refuses to learn from the ongoing public health emergency that is COVID-19. Despite glaring light, uh, it has cast onto the long existing cracks and weaknesses in our seniors care system. So hopefully you'll ask me a lot of questions around that uh, area. Um, we 
have, um, of course, the ongoing battle of, with the doctors as well that we uh, need to address. Um, and that started with the introduction and the passing of Bill 21, the Ensuring Fiscal Sustainability Act. Uh, that basically unilaterally uh, ripped up the uh, agreement uh, for doctors and, and next slide. Um, and now we're seeing uh, as a result uh, of all these changes and the 11 recommendations that were made uh, in this bill with this bill, the passing of this bill that we're seeing uh, doctors flee our province and um, uh, and uh, with a targeted attack against physicians providing primary care, um, our government has decided to make use of this health crisis to tout a corporate relationship with TELUS uh, virtual care platform. There is lingering questions uh, regarding the data and privacy compliance of this uh, platform, which was created by a third party and which now has access to our healthcare information through NetCare. Patients without good comprehensive primary care will ultimately be forced to higher cost uh, areas of our healthcare system, such, a, such as the emergency departments and admissions to hospital. So this entire very public negotiations with doctors is creating stress and uncertainty for those that rely on our, our healthcare system. Um, in conclusion, uh, you know, this is not the first healthcare crisis that Alberta has seen and will not be the last. Now we have the responsibility to ensure that once the dust of this healthcare crisis has settled, our vital public healthcare system is not left to be squandered or privatized. Rather than seeking out short-term solutions in the interest of fiscal balance, our government must instead learn to difficult lesson of this pandemic and commit to putting the interests of Albertans first. At this time, um, when our province will be having to make critical financial decisions, Albertans are, Albertans are looking for real leadership and a real commitment to our public health care. Once we emerge from this pandemic, the political will to expand our public health will be more crucial than ever. Profit has no place in health care. Thank you. Thank you very much for your presentation, uh, Sandra. Um, We've got quite a few questions, um, in, um, but uh, we have room for more. So folks, please go ahead and put your questions in. I will start with a question from Timothy, who's from the Lethbridge Herald, a reporter at the Lethbridge Herald. Uh, many Albertans I talk to about this issue say they don't necessarily care how healthcare is delivered as long as the bill isn't sent to them at the end of the day. How do you answer that? You know, that that's a, a great question because basically that's the narrative that this government is using uh, to sell the contracting out of surgical facilities. We, um, in, in, a, in, a, in a way, when, when we're sick and we want the service and we need the service, you're right, it doesn't matter who, where you go. However, if, if we think outside of that, of that immediacy to get the help, uh, we also need to think long-term when it comes to healthcare, and we need to think what kind of system we are helping to create um, that will ultimately turn into, uh, or could have the potential to turn into a for-profit system where if I or somebody else who, who has more money than I uh, wants to get in quicker, um, it opens up the possibilities of queue jumping. It offers up the possibility of that 
inequity that is created when we when we uh, introduce profit, when we introduce the the medical entrepreneur uh, model into this situation. So, you know, the immediacy is there. Certainly, I I don't. I don't um, blame anybody that needs the help and they need it now, but what we should be focusing in, in is not bringing in pri uh, public or sorry, private solutions, but rather focusing on expanding our capacity within our system, public system, so that people don't have to wait, so that people don't have to be in a situation where they have to pay out of pocket for any type of health care. Okay, thank you. Um, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. I certainly agree with you on most aspects, especially after COVID experience in long-term care. So do not feel pressured by my questions. Is there room for a small percentage of private that puts pressure on rigid government systems to get, to get better? Arguably, the initial Dr. Gimbal Clinic changed cat cataracts care for the world. Yeah, you know, I, and that's always been a, a question. I, I I think in 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 the way that we take care of, of seniors is is a, it's a much broader um, explanation, I guess, if anything, because the continued care system includes everything from. Um, you just needing a, a a home where somebody comes in to checks to make that you're that you woke up that morning to home care. So we have various levels of care, and um, and it it needs to be separated from from basically just providing a roof over somebody's head. Um, and so that's you know there there is the whole idea that seniors can can choose to go into different models of care. But what we're saying is that the privatization of seniors care in this province has created such it went from providing care health care to a hospitality industry to now a real estate industry where people are coming and buying real estate back and forth and and outsourcing uh, the staffing outsourcing all kinds of things with all with public money so we have these private for-profit facilities, they charge whatever the market will bear. Um, you know, I I heard from um, a resident, and I will name them because it's a public letter that I received, of of a, a Chartwell uh, increasing the rent by two hundred, and this couple was paying four thousand six hundred for a one-room suite. So, you know, like. I, I guess for us is, is again, it's that long-term vision of, of what it is that we want to see or, or what we're seeing right now and how can we impact. Competition um, doesn't help in that, in that way. You know, competition um, basically just allows um, those that have to be able to get better access to, to nicer things. But when it comes to all of us having the same access to the the needed services that's where that equity conversation needs to come in there's no room for that type of competition choice is only good for you when you have the money to pay so in that sense um you know what we have seen in the camp in the gimbal eye surgery thing as well you know that alberta it, sorry edmonton has 
the majority, actually, almost 100% of the of the cataract surgeries that are done here in in Edmonton are done in the public system. Whereas in Calgary, the majority of them are are done in the uh, in the private system, and Calgary has a much waiter, much longer wait time, significant longer wait time for cataract surgery that we see in Edmonton. So those things don't always jive. Um, and I guess what we need to do is when we make policy, when we make uh, financial decisions about how it is that we're going to invest our healthcare dollars, we have to think long term. Uh, and the policies that we create today will impact future generations down the road. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we, we take into consideration when we're talking about uh, competition. Wonderful. Um, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. The blood donation center in Lethbridge is closing and transitioning to the blood plasma clinic, which will open in December. Would you be able to comment how and if this falls into the government's plan? Actually, um, that is a, a plan that was uh, um, very much supported um, by uh, can. Uh, Canadian Blood Services as, as a way of expanding the way that we collect plasma. So we are very much looking forward to, to that opening of that plasma collection uh, center. It's part of the, a larger strategy that uh, Canadian Blood Services has to try and get off the, uh, the dependency that we have on U.S. plasma-derived products. This conversation is all about, um, it's not necessarily about um, you know, the plasma being there, not being there, it's actually the conversation is a business conversation where uh, the collection of, of plasma has become such a, um, a market, um, it's called the uh, the liquid gold. Plasma is called the liquid gold because you can sell it to uh, pharmaceutical companies that in, in turn make these products, uh, plasma derived products that we buy back and it has, like I said, it has expanded to a, a billion dollar industry. And so this is why uh, private uh, plasma collectors are so eager to get into the uh, business of collecting plasma. But at the end of the day, um, we have a, uh, a, a plasma collector, a blood collector, national collector for a reason. And that was because it, it, it became it came out of the of the tainted blood scandal that we saw in the 80s. And and, uh, you know, they have actually been tasked with ensuring that Canadians have enough blood supplies and enough plasma supplies so that we um, are able to get not only the fresh plasma transfusions, but also the the medication that is derived from plasma. So it is it is a very good thing that that's happening in the Lethbridge area. Okay, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz again. Will the long-term care disaster be a possible catalyst for this government to change course? Um, you know, that's what we were hoping um, that we would see, um, except for the fact that, that now we're seeing a double down on, on the government's decision to continue to privatize um, seniors' care. What uh, in uh, last week, um, Minister Shandro uh, basically talked or introduced a new approach to building more seniors care facilities. And he indicated that the first part of this approach would be to involve opening a mere one month long bidding process to corporate and non 
nonprofit uh, organizations who could identify underutilized spaces in existing buildings to become new publicly funded, privately delivery continuing care beds. As of now, the government is uncertain how many new beds this program will secure or how many additional staff will be needed or how much this will cost to the public. So if you have identified a place where you want to pay out of your own pocket to retrofit this facility and bring in, you know, they mentioned the number of 14 to 18 seniors to live in this facility, you could apply to get funding uh, to run uh, a seniors care facility. So that's how the low the bar has been set when it comes to this new approach. And then he also mentioned the fact that um, in the upcoming months he will be putting out um, more information about ASLI 2.0 um, and ASLI is the Affordable Supported Living Initiative that has been used in this province to uh, provide capital uh, grants to corporations to build seniors facilities. We as taxpayers provide up to 50% of the capital uh, cost to build them, uh, but we don't own them, uh, they do. And so if they ever want to get out of the business of, of providing seniors care, we have to buy these facilities back at market value. Then once they're built, we continue to pay them um, and, and, uh, and basically provide the operational funding for these facilities to run. And then seniors pay because they pay for their rent and they pay for their accommodation charges and anything else that's, that's not covered by the, our continuing care system. So um, we don't see an end to this and I'm hoping that people will get angry enough at this point that they will start demanding uh, that the government actually go back on, on this and, and actually take time to reevaluate and reimagine a better way to providing care. There's no way that we can go back to the normal way that we were doing things. We need to implement staff to patient ratios in, in seniors care facilities. We need to do a lot of work to make sure that uh, seniors um, are never in this situation again. Um, we need to learn from this pandemic and, and what we're seeing right now is that this government is failing to do that and it's failing miserably. Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs, perhaps not on an immediate topic, but there was a recent announcement, re-increased funding for palliative care, which the object of, oops, which the object of keeping patients in home longer, but at the same time, the funding available to have palliative care doctors visit in home dissipated with the chaos around the funding for doctors. However, it should, I should say, so how does this square for those folks at the end of life? I personally see this as a downloading onto unpaid, usually female, untrained caregivers. Do you care to comment? Yeah, you know, that was a very interesting uh, uh, announcement. And it was interesting mostly because of, of who this minister put in charge of, of uh, doling out this $20 million. $1 million was given to the, uh, the Alberta Palliative Association, uh, Hospice and Palliative Care Association, to set up a, a, a grief uh, line uh, and, and basically those types of support. So that, I mean, that that is a good move um then the other four 
50 million were given, sorry, 5 million, I believe, were given to uh, Covenant Health um, and um, the Covenant Health um, area um, to to look at, at palliative care. And then the other 14 million were, uh, um, MLA Williams is going to be tasked with, uh, after supposedly meeting with stakeholders, tasked with allocating that money uh, into our palliative care system. The concern that we have is that he's also the uh, MLA who indicated that if we, in Alberta, if we can privatize liquor stores, then we can privatize education. And uh, and he was also the one that brought forward Bill 207, which wanted to give uh, care providers uh, um, conscientious rights, which they already have afforded to them. Um, but what that bill wanted to do was actually take away their ability to refer if they did not agree with the type of services, the legal services that people were seeking. Um, and so that kind of puts the palliative care conversation into the forefront in terms of is it a good move or, or do we have, see this is what, what happens when you don't trust the government to make good policy decisions. Because if, if you look at, at his background and where he's coming from and the angle that he's coming from, then is palliative care actually going to be uh, strengthened to the point that it needs to be? Because it's, a, it's such an important service uh, and it has been a, a service that has been underfunded for so long. Uh, it, it requires specialized caregivers, like you mentioned. It's, it requires such gifted people that allow people to, to basically um, die with the dignity that anybody needs to die with and, and with the care that it needs, that they need to have, um, you know, prior to their passing. So, so for us, is it was a, a very odd selection as to who he put in charge. Um, but what we're hoping is that we will, um, at some point see what it is that they plan to do uh, with palliative care and and if that's going to negatively impact access to um, services such as medical assistance and dying uh, and what it is that this government uh, is trying to do in the background with this whole uh, announcement that was made. Okay, um, our next question comes from Beth Mundell. Uh, public home care workers neither got danger pay, which their private hired cohort government got, nor increased pay. In spite of rhetorics thanking them, no pay increase. Why? This is very good. You know, when it comes to uh, continuing care, and again, home care is one of those areas that actually uh, is covered under continuing care private uh, and not-for-profit operators and, and uh, contracted agencies received close to $200 million in, in COVID uh, support money uh, that was supposed to also go to uh, give uh, higher pay to the staff that were working and that have been working nonstop throughout this pandemic. Um, but again, it just goes to show you that um, that our public system is not valued in the same manner that uh, that their friends are, I guess, um, that we um, have given them enough money for for them to have, um, you know, basically 
survived and provide the services that they're supposed to provide through this pandemic. Yet, um, you know, throughout this pandemic, we heard all kinds of issues about the the one site where people were only supposed to be working in one site rule not being respected or being kind of let go by Alberta Health Services because there wasn't enough staff. We didn't see a, a real actual movement um, that would that you would expect to see given the amount of funding that these uh, organizations received. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, what would have been a, a good um, good thing would be to have actually done a review of, of the response by uh, seniors care providers and how it is that they have allocated funding uh, and, and home care, private home care providers as well, and, and, uh, and be able to to take a look at, at that information and assess exactly what it is that, that these providers are actually doing with our, our public money. Or was it just, uh, uh, you know, we put out a press release and we called it Christmas for, uh, for private uh, and not-for-profit uh, seniors care provider because that's what it turned out to be, this pandemic turned out to be for them. Okay, um, the next question is also Bev, from Bev Mundell, but I think you've already answered it. it. It's very similar to the first question that was asked by Timothy. What do we say to people who say we've already got a private healthcare system? So what's the problem? Uh, maybe we'll just keep this one brief. Just, it is a huge problem. Like I said before, we uh, don't want to set a, a healthcare system or or support a healthcare system that is not based on ability, that is based on need and not ability to pay. Any time that um, that we get that response, um, it also has to come with a question as to if you get sick, are you able to afford private healthcare? Yeah. Um. Um, Cliff Peterson, the COVID-19 pandemic has clearly exposed that public health care is faring much better than private. Arguably, more pandemics are on the way. So it seems important to keep our current system. Very much so. I couldn't have said it better. I think that that's that's the whole intent. If, if we don't learn anything from this pandemic, or if we learn anything from this pandemic, is that our public health care system is what has saved um, so many lives here. We we look across the world and just look at our neighbors next door and and see what private health care looks like in in a time of a pandemic. And I think we thank our lucky stars that we live in Canada and. And for that, I, I think we we also need to have uh, the responsibility of ensuring that that we we uh, protect what we have and that we improve what we have, not just the status quo, but that we improve uh, and expand our, our the solid foundation that we have it within our public health care system, and find solutions um, that will will improve access to surgeries, that will improve access to a better and reimagined seniors care system, home care system, and and basically. Um, have a system that's, like I said before, based on need and not ability to pay. Um, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Uh, prior to COVID, Kalispell was doing as many Canadian joint replacements as Leftbridge. U.S. costs are five to ten times Canadian ones. Would it be better to employ locals and not lose forever fun funds from Alberta? Sorry, which company was that? 
I think it's Kalispell, which is a town in the United States. So prior to oh, okay. COVID, Kalispell was doing as many Canadian joint replacements as Leftbridge. U.S. costs are five to ten times Canadian ones. Would it be better to employ locals and not lose forever funds from Alberta? For sure, uh, locals in, in in meaning our 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 staff within our public system, uh, and uh, and not necessarily opening it up to these private. Uh, for-profit surgical facilities or non-hospital surgical facilities because that's that's a problem and I I hope I'm getting your question right. Um, When you're talking about uh, these facilities that, that the government wants to set up and, and that there have been all kinds of requests for interest in uh, in getting these surgical facilities to sign up. Um, basically, what happens is that these people are also working in our public system. So when they open up their own little clinic, they leave the public system and we lose incredible amount of, of human resources. I mean, we only have enough anesthesiologists to go around. We only have enough surgeons to go around. And over the years what we have done is actually put ourselves into a bigger hole in in terms of making specialists become really specialists into some really thing tiny thing and and they they don't necessarily do anything else so there's all kinds of things that could actually be done in the public system to ensure that we do have uh, local capacity that we do hire our doctors that, that basically the doctors that are working in the public system remain in the public system uh, and that we, um, you know, uh, look at what is bottlenecking these uh, these surgeries. Is it the fact that, you know, that we have uh, not enough um, operating rooms, that we don't have enough uh uh, round-the-clock access to MRIs and diagnostic imaging in, in hospitals. There's all kinds of questions that need to be asked when it comes to determining how it is that we deal with wait times. But definitely uh, finding solutions within the public system is what we need to do if we want a long-term solution. Bringing in private is is, is very much a short-term band-aid solution that down the road will ultimately cost us more. Okay, we have quite a few questions left, um, and so there's two questions that I'm going to uh, read out because I think they um, touch on the same subject. The first is Lori Schultz. Can you comment on virtual healthcare such as Talus Babylon? And then Ian Hurdle, talking to physicians, they have been very unhappy with commercial push by Talus of Babylon in two provinces. Maybe you could comment on both those questions. Yeah, you know what? Um, that's that's definitely something that we are currently very much interested in following up. Is the role of third-party uh, app developers that that have um, somehow decided that they want to get into the healthcare industry? Um, we need to have a little bit more information as to, um, you know, I get the fact that people weren't able to go to the doctors during the pandemic, uh, and that virtual health uh, was necessary. However, um, developing, uh, we already had uh, in place a a, a virtual health platform within our public system that could have been supported um, more during this time of pandemic. Uh, And um, 
but instead they chose to outsource it to TELUS and uh, TELUS stands to uh, gain a lot of money in, in this new world of health that they've entered. So um, I, I think in a lot of ways we will have more to say about this in the upcoming months because we are currently um, uh, engaging in a, in a study uh, around virtual health and uh, with the Canadian Health Coalition uh, members. So um, stay tuned if you want to hear a lot more about that um, that uh, platform. Okay. Um, Bart Phillips, the Ernest and Young report recommended that certain surgic surgeries such as hernias and tubal obligation obligations be defunded. Could you comment on that? as to whether the government will follow through on that? We actually haven't heard anything uh, as of yet, but like I said, these recommendations um, have slowly been trickling out. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, Barb, I think, mentioned tubal ligation, uh, hernia surgeries as, as not being <laughs> uh, too... In, I guess they describe it as not being... Apart from not being medically... Um, complex or whatever that could be done somewhere else I, it's a, it's a, I don't know if if the minister of health probably has never had a tubal ligation or or that kind of surgery because uh, they're not they're not simple surgeries and uh, hernia re, hernia repairs are not simple surgeries either so i, I think a lot of those um, things that will be coming up that we will be seeing slowly trickle out uh, need to be uh, brought to the forefront because that's how governments have managed to uh, delist services for a long time is is basically us not even being aware that all of a sudden these things are not covered and uh, and that we are expected to pay out of pocket when we when we go and and do these services and and uh, it's been privatization by stealth um, that we have seen over the years and and the and the pattern continues you know, they bring it out and then nobody talks about it and nobody, uh, we normalize the situation and then until somebody's faced with uh, not having uh, or not being able to get these surgeries that were delisted um, or services that are delisted, then it becomes a reality for us. So I think more than ever, we need to become really really uh, alert and and share whatever information we we get uh, around some of these changes that are being made in the background okay our next question is for mario who is um from the college uh studying um journalism and will be reporting this for the leftbridge college while the government will still pay for services received privately do you believe this is only just a step closer to a fully fledged American style of healthcare system. For sure, and and like I like I've said before, I, I think it opens the the door for uh, you know those those ones that are seeking to sell um, patients those little extras because there's all kinds of things that happen when you turn uh, doctors into into entrepreneurs when you turn uh, the system or those corporations that are coming in uh, to provide services uh, into or giving them the opportunity and the legal framework to to be able to privatize that's exactly what will happen and, and uh, this is not fear-mongering it's basically the the logical steps 
and into what it is that we're doing with the legislative changes as, and uh, and allowing uh, this market entry to happen in Alberta. Um, I think all Albertans should be quite um, upset about the fact that that is happening during a time that, that all these changes, drastic changes to our healthcare system, are happening under the, you know, under the the cloud of a pandemic. When we're all worried about work, when we're worried about the health of our loved ones, um, that they they've decided to kind of push forward. And so I say shame on them and for doing this. Um, and it's exactly what will happen, Mario. Okay, we have two more questions left. Um, oh, just one just came in. So three more questions left, but we've passed our time. Are you okay to stay on a little bit longer and answer the last couple of questions, Sandra? For sure, yes. Okay. Yes. So uh, the next question comes from Beth Mundell. With excellent doctors uh, leaving the province and corporate hiring of docs on the horizon, will we be getting the lower qualified docs or those from the bottom half of the class? Um, you know, we, we uh, if, if you look at my last slide, there were over 400 doctors are leaving the province of Alberta. If you want to actually keep uh, tabs on, on that, I suggest that you go to Kim Seaver's page. He has a, a tracker of how many doctors are leaving. The AMA has indicated at over 400. Um, unfortunately, what we're going to see uh, as a result of this very public negotiations is a loss of of a lot of doctors, uh, and we're already seeing it. In a medicine hat, for example, there is a, a, a very fine and well-known uh, obstetrics clinic that is losing eight doctors, and, and that potentially leaves that community, um, you know, very hard-pressed to, to have uh, obstetrical services for women. Um, so this is this is not a joke. Like I, I don't understand why uh, this government uh, has taken that nonchalant kind of attitude to a reality that will that we will be faced with when it comes to losing so many doctors that have worked in in their communities for so long. So who they hire, I I have no idea what their plan is, or even if they have a plan as to who they they think they can bring in uh, and how it is that they're going to be um, you know accrediting these doctors I know that uh, through legislation with a uh, red tape reduction uh, ministry that we are seeing uh, you know a, a lifting of of um, requirements at, at some points are making it easier for people to get um, accredited here um, be for their professions so it, it will remain to be seen uh, who um, will be taking over these over 400 doctors that are leaving uh, and uh, and seeing what kind of quality of care Albertans will receive as a result my hope is that they're not that Machiavellian that they will just hire anybody um, and that they will be responsible for those that they hire. Okay. Um, Ian Huddle, AHS hospitals seem to have copied private firms by designating workers as casual, even if working full-time to avoid paying benefits, including nursing, labs, etc. I guess that's more a comment than a question. Um, and Leona Jacobs, for clarification, how do these changes square with Canadian Health Act? 
Um, you know, we uh, we have done a, a bit of a legal opinion that we will be uh, exploring a little bit more around Bill 30. Uh, this government is a smart government in that they, they were very much aware of the limitations of the Canada Health Act. Um, however, what needs to happen, what we need to look is, is to the uh, legalities around um, the, the definition uh, in the in Bill 30 of who persons are. Uh, there's all kinds of legalese and, and languages that, that are, um, you know, definitely need to be looked into more. Um, but um, on, on, a, on the surface, um, and until we actually start seeing user fees or or blatant uh, infractions of the Canada Health Act, um, that they have managed to ward the bills and that they have managed to actually um, create a narrative that in in um, in everyday language doesn't seem to violate the Canada Health Act. But again, that's above. Um, you know our our knowledge base, so we will be seeking uh, further legal opinions on on what it is that we can do from that level, um, and whether or not we need to be looking at some of the um, of the implications that it, it actually has uh, with the Canada Health Act. So we have written a letter to uh, the Minister of Health, uh, the Federal Minister of Health. And uh, and we will see from there as well. Um, you know, keep um, keep in touch with us, and, and we will um, definitely um, share more information around that uh, that issue. Um, we had I had in, in my last slide. There's a, a slide for Friends of Medicare Tracker. If you're interested in 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 keeping um, abreast of some of the things that this government is doing and some of the changes that sometimes are may or may not be public, please go into our website www.friendsofmedicare.org and you can look for the tracker under the portion that says blog. And um, that's a great way of keeping uh, updated on on what it is that we're doing. Um, and like I said, some of these areas that I haven't been able to give you more clarity on, like virtual health and, and uh, this impact on the Canada Health Act, will be coming, uh, more information will be forthcoming. Great. Um, we've got some thank yous from Devon Hargraves, from Mario Cabardillo, um, Laurie Schultz, thank you very much for an informative, albeit sobering presentation. Barb Phillips, excellent presentation. All this is very scary and needs to be taken very seriously by Albertans. So thank you very much um, for your presentation today, Sandra, and joining us. Do you have some parting words before we end the live stream? No, you know, thank you again for, for listening uh, to me for this length of time. Um, I just want to encourage you to get uh, involved uh, in, you know, right now it's not just Friends of Medicare bringing attention to this, but there's other organizations as well. But um, get involved. This is a time where we need to all stand up. Our uh, way of doing actions is, is no longer the same that we had before, because otherwise we would have been out in mass on protests and rallies against Bill 30, but we can't. So we have to find new and innovative ways of taking action. And I hope and I invite all of you to take part in, in some of the actions that we will be having uh, and, and certainly keep informed because that's the only way that we can keep this government accountable um, and, 
and, and basically uh, let them know that we are watching, that people um, are aware that this, this is their plan and that we uh, we will not let uh, them get away with it. Profit has no place in healthcare. Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you.